Welcome to the Analysis.News. I'm Greg Wilpert. Today I'll be talking to Gio Maher, the author of the just-released book, A World Without Police, How Strong Communities Make Cops Obsolete, published by Versa Books. With the coronavirus pandemic in the middle of its second year now, there are increasing signs that people are thinking about how we ought to reorganize social institutions once we get out of this mess. One of the many movements that are formulating demands in this regard is the movement against the police. This movement, which gained momentum last year in the wake of the police murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, has been expressed in the slogan of defund the police. Another slogan that is gradually gaining ground is police abolition. The call for police abolition is taken up in Gio Mayer's new book, A World Without Police. The book outlines the pivotal role that the police play in U.S. society for maintaining the existence, the existing order of capitalism, inequality, and white supremacy. And it goes on to point out how we might overcome our perceived need for the police. Gio Mayer is a professor of political science at Vassar College and the author of several other books, including We Created Chavez, Decolonizing Dialectics, and Building the Commune. Thanks for joining me today, Gio. I'm so glad to be here, Greg. So in my intro, I argue that many are currently thinking about how we might build a better world, given the upheaval that the pandemic has caused. But let's start. So let's start there. Um, why did you decide to write this book now? So, you know, for more than a decade now, I've been in, involved in community organizing from the Bay Area to Philadelphia and, and nationwide um, around police violence, police brutality. And so this has been a question that I've been working on for uh, a long time. Um, and yet over the past few years, what we've seen is that these questions have really leapt into uh, mainstream consciousness. Um, I argue that the reason that we're talking about these things uh, has everything to do with movements in the streets. This is why the narrative has shifted so dramatically in recent years around the police. It's, you know, been not, uh, you know, people asking nicely, asking the police to change themselves, asking them to behave better. It's been people taking to the streets in Ferguson and Baltimore and more recently in Minneapolis and, and really demanding that and really insisting that they're not going anywhere until something is done uh, with the police. Now, um, I want to go through uh, your book more or less systematically. And one of the first um, chapters basically talks about how it is that um, the police has really basically taken something that we take for granted. Uh, and I just wanted to, uh, so, so let's focus on that first. I mean, um, uh, what is it uh, exactly that um, we're taking for granted and, and why uh, in terms of the police? Why do we uh, need the police or do we think we need the police? So a fundamental starting point when it comes to thinking about all you know, social and political institutions is the fact that these are not eternal. Right. They were created at a certain moment in time. And this applies perfectly well to the police. Police have not always existed. Um, and one of the questions we need to grapple with is why is it that not only the police were created, invented? What is the origin story of those police? But what is the society that we live in in relation to how the police function? When we look at the origins of the police, first of all, we see that globally, um, as well as in the United States, you have a combination of policing, uh, you know, as a mechanism for, on the one hand, upholding wealth, upholding capital accumulation and the capitalist mode of production. And on the other hand, policing so-called dangerous populations, usually racialized populations, people of color, colonized people across the world, and in the United States, in particular, slaves, and then later, former slaves. 
these are the, you know, this is what the police do from the very beginning, particularly in the United States, is to police wealth and to police whiteness. Um, once we understand that, we begin to understand in a much clearer way um, why it is that the police continue to do the same things today. Um, otherwise, this seems, you know, inexplicable to a lot of people. Why are the police so violent? Why do they systematically brutalize certain communities when they're here to keep us safe? So, you know, in the in the you know the mainstream narrative, it really takes realizing that that has never been the function of the police. The police were not invented and created to keep people safe. Um, they were not invented and created for public safety in any sense of the word. Um, they were created to uphold certain rights, certain freedoms, and the wealth and the privileges of certain populations. This is where the police come from. What happens over time, and I think this is an, an increasingly important piece of the uh, equation, is that not only do the police continue to do the same thing throughout history, in other words, in the United States for the past 150 years, um, but they do more than that. They recreate society. They reshape society in their image. And so when, you know, and what I argue in the book is that we need to understand this political function as the police as actively recreating American society, making it more of what I call a world with police, a world of police. What does that mean every day? It means that increasingly our society is one in which uh, we're taught that the police are the solution to every problem, right? Uh, whether it's social welfare, poverty, poor housing, uh, lack of opportunities, um, you know, lack of schools, lack of after-school activities, you send the police. Mental health crises, send the police. And this is how our society has been built. We live in a society that's increasingly built on this assumption that the police are the only solution. And the, part of what that means for the task of police abolition is to really rethink uh, what a new society would look like. Um, and here, you know, borrowing, of course, the, the, the phrase from Angela Davis, who speaks of prisons becoming obsolete. We're talking about what kind of a society would be required for the police to be obsolete. Once we think about it that way, we begin to understand that what it is that the police uphold, again, whiteness, wealth, um, privileges, inequalities, whether racial, gendered, economic, um, and a world in which those inequalities were not so prevalent and did not exist would be a world that would not require the police in the same way, would be a world in which the police would literally serve no function whatsoever. And so this is the horizon of thinking beyond the police. It means thinking about on a micro level, uh, who it is that we can call to uh, negotiate conflicts within a community instead of the police. Who can we call when a neighbor or a family member finds themselves in a, in a mental health crisis. Uh, the police are, of course, not mental health professionals of any kind. They're violence professionals. Um, and so why would we be calling them to deal with this question? And it's building outward from this sort of micro level and thinking about confronting and um, breaking, as I argue, police power, the power of police unions, that we can be begin to envision a, a new kind of horizon, a different kind of society. Hmm. Now, the point that you make about how um, police as an institution recreate the society, I think, is a really important point because um, I mean that's one of the things, you know, as a sociologist uh, that uh, we learn in sociology, essentially, that most of the institutions, if not all of them, basically recreate uh, the institutions and the society on a daily level. And so, um, by pointing out the uh, institution of the police uh, as being part of that, is uh, is to point out something that we tend to overlook. I would say because we think that it's so necessary because we 
kind of grow up in this kind of for granted takenness of uh, of the police. Now, you use the term actually in that chapter, the first chapter of the pig majority, in which I guess you mean the police majority, uh, poli that the police in a sense constitute a majority. Can you explain a little bit more as to what you mean, how you mean that? Uh, I, I mean, in what sense uh, do the police or does, does the support for the police constitute a majority? What does that mean? I think we need to understand on the one hand that policing is far beyond the police themselves. And that's what I try to argue uh, in that chapter. Um, this is on some levels very obvious, right? Technically speaking, uh, Trayvon Martin was not killed by the police. Ahmed Arbery, who was sort of hunted and lynched in Georgia you know, and last year, was not killed by the police. Um, you know, you can think of many cases in which people were killed by white vigilantes, um, in which white bystanders or those fearful called 911 resulting in someone's death. You can think of the uh, you know, the judicial apparatus, you think of district attorneys, you can think of judges, you can think of juries and grand juries, which refuse to charge Darren Wilson, uh, you know, for killing Mike Brown, for example. And when we start to understand this, we begin to realize that the pig majority is far bigger than the police themselves as an institution. Now, the institution of the police plays a crucial role in upholding and expanding police power, but it's also uh, supported by this far broader um, policing structure um, that is in many ways um, coterminous with whiteness. Uh, it's, you know, this is what W.E.B. Du Bois recognized nearly 100 years ago when he was writing about the Reconstruction era. Um, you know, he said police and white vigilantes have been almost the same thing from day one. Policing and lynch mobs have been almost the same thing, and the historical complicity of the two is, is really uh, undeniable. And what we've got today is this broad policing apparatus, which um, is anchored in whiteness, uh, which is anchored in upholding wealth and whiteness, um, as you know, as I said, and then also, you know, even expands beyond that. And so, uh, you know, I also, you know, talk about the ways in which, you know, and, and we know this story very well, um, in which many black elected politicians and political leaders were conscripted into this policing structure, into supporting it, into the war on drugs, into harsher sentencing measures in the, in the 1990s. Um, and this is a global phenomenon as well. We're talking about policing as as firmly interlocked with U.S. imperialism abroad, with global wars, um, you know, with, with whether it's supporting uh, local police in Mexico or the actual counterinsurgency warfare that is being wrought on the, you know, on, on a worldwide scale. This is part of a broader policing structure. And so we need to understand this in its broadest terms before we can really confront it and push back on it. Now, that's actually also the kind of the that leads to the next chapter, really, in the sense that um, the question of what do the police actually do? And you make the connection, I think, very, which is also very interesting and very important for people to understand. I think this connection, this historical connection to uh, the the, uh, the policing of or uh, policing. I mean, this was before there was a police, but the policing of slavery, essentially. Um, and, and this kind of continuity. But nowadays, everybody takes for granted that they're supposed to, quote unquote, protect and serve. Now, um, outline a little bit as to, well, to what extent do they or don't they actually do that? It's, it's really ironic, especially in light of what I've just said about this vast policing apparatus, the vast structure and the vast um, sector of the population in the United States in particular that supports and upholds and participates in and is complicit in policing on a daily basis, and the fact that the police protect very few people, right? Despite the claims to protect and serve, this has always been a very selective 
um, process of uh, you know of protecting and 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 the question of who do they serve is is a good one, um, and you know I think as we as we know the police are most likely to protect and systematically do most protect um, those who are already protected right they protect the whitest the wealthiest those with the privileges that need to be defended whether they're racial privileges whether they're uh, you know economic privileges um, and when you begin to do a, a sort of deductive you know, uh, process of taking away those who are systematically left unprotected by the police, you're actually left with very few people. Um, the police are not particularly good at protecting or serving people of color. We know this. The, you know, the rates of police murder against people of color are, you know, vastly outstrip, uh, you know, the, the, the rates in which this violence is inflicted on the white population. Women are subject to more violence from the police than the police actually prevent. And this is, you know, I mean, these are statistically really incontrovertible things. Uh, you know, police violence against women, whether it's, you know, uh, sex workers, women of color, whether it's their own partners in the home, um, it vastly outstrips the tiny minuscule fraction of, uh, you know, of, uh, for example, sexual assaults that the police actually prosecute. And that's based on the assumption that that prosecution somehow makes people safer, which it does not either. When you add into the fact that people having, you know, people who are homeless, uh, people having mental health crises, all, you know, all of these people are at a systematically higher, uh, you know, uh, you know, rate of, of police violence, of police murder, much more likely to be killed, much more likely to be brutalized. And when you add up all those populations, you're really not left with many, right? And even when you take the, the most privileged populations, right, white, rich men, uh, how many of them have, uh, you know, have children who are, for example, queer or trans people who may be homeless for a period of their lives, who may have a mental health crisis? You realize that policing really doesn't offer protection. It simply doesn't. This is again. These are these are facts. Um, they've been borne out by statistics. Um, they, uh, you know, these are things that the police don't want to talk about. And it's sort of the dirty secret of policing is that there's really no um, statistical reason to believe that policing makes us any safer. What it does is it soaks up huge amounts of resources. We're talking in the, in the billions, the many, many billions of dollars annually that could be dedicated to actually uh, making our society more safe. Um, if anything, policing by seizing people out of communities, tearing communities and families apart, locking them up um, and making it impossible for people to reintegrate in a healthy way into, into society, makes societies and communities far more dangerous and create the sort of situation that we live in today. What the police do, though, through their unions, through their political lobbying capacity, is then to extort more money. Every time the police fail to make us safer, they tell us they just need more money. They just need more funding. They need more technology. And then maybe they'll be able to make us safer. Um, but the reality is that, uh, you know, that, that that doesn't happen. The answer we get from the right and the, you know, the, the sort of boogeyman of Chicago is this incredibly dangerous place. And, well, what would you do without police in Chicago? Chicago is the most over-policed city in the country. And yet the police have not made that city any safer, right? What does that tell us about what we're told about policing and the reality? Now, of course, one of the things that uh, comes up over and over again is that every time there's an abuse of police power, which happens all the time, is uh, that, uh, well, we just need to reform the police. We need to uh, somehow fix it. You know, we still need it. I mean, this this notion that uh, this taken for granted notion that that the police are absolutely essential is is cannot be touched, basically. Um, so the only solution then would seem to be police reform. Now, um, you argue in the book that uh, police reform is basically useless. Why is that? 
I mean, the simple fact is that the police have been reformed ever since they were founded. It's been one constant, never-ending process of reform, um, which creates this sort of loop where there's this promise that the police will get better, more effective, more professional, less violent, less racist, all of these things. Um, and and you, so you talk about waves of reform from the 1880s, 1890s, to the 1920s and 30s, to the 1960s, after the you know, mass you know, rebellions demanding, again, civil rights, black power. You see these waves of demands for reform. The menu of reforms offered is always the same. And when you break those down, whether it's community policing, so-called community policing, um, which destroys communities rather than strengthening them, uh, whether it's a technological fix, whether it's a new kind of chokehold that is allegedly safer, but which we then find out later is killing people as well, whether it's new kinds of weaponry, all of these reforms end up feeding into the same system. And the whole loop provides cover for the fact that, um, that you know, we're attempting to fix problems that are systemic. We're attempting to reform away problems that cannot be reformed away because they're baked into the structure of what the police do. Again, if your starting assumption is the police are there to protect and serve, why are they not doing it correctly? Let's see if we can reform in a way that will you know, allow them to perform that function. You've misunderstood the problem from the beginning. Because once you understand that the police exist to protect certain privileges, then you wouldn't even be asking the question of, well, why are they uh, violent in particular toward poor people of color? because it's built right into what it is that the police do in American society and also on a global scale. You mentioned earlier that uh, the, the, um, the police uh, unions, uh, or as one should say probably so-called unions, because I think you make the important, the crucial point in your book that they're not really unions, um, uh, that, that these are being used to maintain police power and that we basically need to break those unions. Now, there's two questions I have about this. I mean, first of all, um, one of the points, first of all, I guess we need to explain you know, exactly why they're not unions and how do they function. But the other point I want to ask about is um, you also make the argument that uh, while most unions have gotten weaker over the years, which is no doubt true if you look at unionization rates across the United States, they've been going down. But uh, police unions have actually only gotten stronger over the years. So the other question is, well, why is that? So first, what is it uh, about police unions that makes them not really unions? How are they different, in other words? And secondly, how, how do they get stronger? Mm -hmm. uh, I think this is a really important question. Uh, it's important in part because debates on the left have not been clear enough about this question of these so-called police unions and what to do with them. The concern is this, the fundamental concern is if we adopt a position that weakens any public sector union, meaning the police um, or, you know, for example, ICE, Border Patrol, these, you know, these unions, we're providing leverage to then uh, be used against other unions. This is the concern. And, and, and we should admit it's a real concern. Um, the problem is that, you know, there, there are several problems. Uh, one is that, you know, as, as you mentioned, these are not unions um, in the sense that they don't actually and can't be understood as actually representing workers against bosses against capital um and this gets you know this is played out precisely in the history of these unions uh, you know they developed along a different trajectory from other unions they were developed in a situation in which um you know they at the moment that police began to unionize began to organize um they immediately uh, 
replaced and moved beyond other unions. As I put it in the book, they sort of leapfrogged them, gaining privileges, demanding special privileges, and that they did so primarily by making deals with, uh, you know, with their apparent uh, bosses. Um, technically, these are not unions because they're associations, they're whatever benevolent, benevolent associations. And this is, uh, you know, in this question has everything to do with the substantive point because they, you know, these are so-called unions that gave up the right to strike um, in order to be stable partners in the governing process with city officials, um, with, you know, the powers that be of white supremacy uh, and capitalism. They do not protect workers. They do not support workers. And other, you know, instead, systematically, they oppress and brutalize the poorest the most unprotected workers. Um, and, you know, again, on the economic side, you can say from the very beginning and look at the role of police as strike breakers in, in the most important waves of union activity and economic strikes in the country. And at the same time, this dovetails with their role as upholders of white supremacy, of destroying black movements, of destroying movements of, of people of color, insurgent movements in, uh, in the United States. Um, and when you look at the actual process of the consolidation of police power, through these so-called unions, you realize that they do it through provoking panic about uh, about you know communities of color. In New York, uh, you know uh, a very famous you know uh, riot undertaken by the police, white supremacist riot against a black mayor is part of what pr uh, propels the police union into a position of authority and power. It is by leveraging fear of workers on the one hand and fear of people of color, black people in particular, that these unions begin to consolidate their power. Now, what do you see today? So-called police unions are the political spearhead of police power. Uh, on the local level, they negotiate these binding contracts, which are absolutely ludicrous. And if anyone, you know, if, if most people knew how these contracts worked, um, they would be scandalized because it is on these, this level of local contracts that y it becomes nearly impossible to even question, discipline, file charges against a police officer accused of misconduct. Um, whether it's the limitations on the, the fact that charges have to be, you know, and, and grievances have to be filed immediately, um, but that, you know, even within a few months to a couple of years after uh, complaints being filed, they're scrubbed from their records entirely, which is why we see cops moving from different, abusive cops moving from different, uh, you know, uh, agencies to others with, uh, and, you know, with no one realizing that they have a, a systematic history of, uh, you know, of abuse. So, you know, on the, on the local level, they negotiate. On the state level, they push what are so-called law enforcement officer bill of rights, which are special rights for police, not just rights like everyone else, special rights that make it, again, harder for police to be held accountable. And when you realize that the fundamental question in all of this in the negotiations of so-called police unions is not uh, the, for example, the economic stability or solidarity of police as workers with other workers, but it's special privileges economically and it's impunity on a political level. That is the fundamental demand. And the police more often than not are willing to forego their wages and their wage increases if it means that there will be less accountability for when they you know, inflict violence onto other workers, which is what they do every day. And there's simply no way to deal with the police without confronting, destroying police unions. Uh, you know, it, I would love to hear a suggestion from the left on how to actually confront police power without, you know, dismantling uh, these these sort of spearhead of police, you know, what I argue to be a, a fascistic um, police power. Uh, but there's simply no way to do it because they are the fundamental mechanism for uh, not only upholding but expanding police power today. 
And I think that's a re also a really, really important insight. Um, and uh, and I guess the, the question, though, is why is it, though, and, and I'm not sure, I mean, you, I, I think you partially answered that question, but I want to get a little bit deeper as to why it is that uh, that at a time when unions have gotten weaker, why is it that the police unions or the benevolent associations have actually gotten stronger? I want to throw out one hypothesis. Um, maybe could it have something to do with the fact that they have the weapons? Yes, no, certainly. And it's, you know, the the... You know, the main the, the phrase that's often used for this is the carve out, right? Um, when uh, political leaders are attacking uh, union protections, weakening unions, uh, you know, breaking their, you know, political power and, you know, and basically scrapping whatever agreements they have with them, the police get a carve out, right? They are exempted. This is what happened in Wisconsin, you know, with Scott Walker. You know, you've got the, the police you know, essentially uh, claiming a privileged position that prevents them from being treated like workers. So on the one hand, they want to say, yes, these are unions. Yes, we are workers. On the other hand, whenever the anti-union train comes through town, they want to be exempted, right? They want special protections and they demand those protections. Again, they traded away their right to strike. They don't really strike, but they engage in a whole other range of political lobbying, protest and outright sabotage, you know, in cities across the country of political leaders if they feel like those privileges are threatened. Police do not show union solidarity with workers. We know this. This is 100 percent true. You even have a case in, in Texas recently where uh, even public, uh, so, sorry, public safety workers, meaning police and firefighters, were trying to equalize their wages. And the police said, no, we don't want to even have the firefighters on our level. We want to be the most privileged sector, um, you know, and we want to claim these privileges for ourselves. That's not a workers movement. That's not a solidarity, you know, movement. That's a movement for the privileges of a certain sector. And precisely because it's a sector that the state needs to function and is willing to buy off and, you know, and make into a mechanism and a weapon to use against the poor. Now, we spent a fair amount of time talking about what's wrong with the police and how they maintain their power. Of course, this leads to the big question as to, well, you know, uh, what would happen if we just got rid of the police? Um, how would we maintain safe public safety, for example, which is, after all, supposedly the main function of police? Uh, they obviously do much more than that uh, and don't even do that, uh, as, as you've outlined. But, but still, the question of public safety remains. So what's the alternative? Absolutely. And again, uh, you know, you, you're right. The fundamental starting point has to be recognition that the police do not provide public safety. If we don't understand that, accept it, you know, as the basis for our analysis, then we've started on the wrong foot in terms of even grasping what, you know, what is next. Because otherwise the conversations are the conversations we're having today, right? Um, you know, in in light of a, an increase uh, in, you know, uh, the murder rate, you know, in certain places, I don't, I don't want to overstate what's happening today, but an increase in certain kinds of violent crimes in Philadelphia, you know, homicide is increasing. Um, and then the question is, well, why would we, how could we defund the police at this, you know, at this point when, uh, when homicides are increasing? The assumption, the fundamental assumption of the question is that the police prevent homicides from happening when we know that that's not, uh, you know, that that's not true. Now, the more important question is, what is this alternative world that we're trying to build? Um, you know, and, and police abolition draws upon a tradition of abolitionist organizing um, that goes back, you know, you know, decades to the origins of the prison abolition movement. Um, but it goes back even further, of course, to the fundamental reference point of abolition, which is the abolition of, of slavery, the first wave of abolition. But in all of these cases, what's really important to understand is that 
despite the name of abolition, this is not simply about dismantling political institutions, it's about creating alternatives. And one of the uh, main failings of the first wave, the abolition of slavery, um, was precisely that uh, while slavery was abolished, nothing was created in, the, in its place. You had experiments with the Freedmen's Bureau under Reconstruction. There were the experiments in building a different kind of society, a different kind of economy, making sure that the former slaves um, had the social fabric to exist on the same level and in a position of on a footing of equality, but that was destroyed systematically by white terror, by the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and, and so what we got instead was the police. What we got instead was the racialization of crime and mass incarceration. And that's the reality that, you know, that abolitionists are confronting today, but from the same position, namely, um, again, you abolish institutions in part, at least by rendering those institutions obsolete. Um, in part by uh, making in creating a kind of society that doesn't require police, that doesn't require, uh, you know, prisons. Now, the two pieces, right, the, the destroying and the dismantling of the existing world and the creation of the new world don't always go um, and move at the same pace. Last year, the rebellions and the resistance, not only in Minneapolis, but worldwide, sparked by the murders of, of not only George Floyd, but Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, created a situation in which there was active talk for the first time of dismantling the Minneapolis police. Now that experiment has stalled, but the bottom up experiment of creating alternatives, which was happening on the ground in Minneapolis through a uh, local, you know, committee for safety in the, you know, in basically the protest park area of Minneapolis is one that we've also seen nationwide. There is an entire fabric of grassroots abolitionist organizing that exists across the country and across the world. And that's part of what I try to draw out. Uh, in the book. There are anti-violence organizations. There are organizations that exist in almost every city to intervene in community conflict before the police get involved, to prevent the police from getting involved. There are efforts to divert 911 calls, particularly for uh, mental health emergencies, to non-police actors. That's a crucial one because it takes hundreds of thousands of people out of that interaction daily with the police, which is a deadly um, interaction. You've got community uh, organizations that are attempting to build local police-free zones where the neighbors help to resolve conflicts with one, you know, in, in conversation with one another. And what I, you know, what I like to point out in the book is that we all know what this looks like. It seems like such a distant world, but, you know, we don't always call the police when we have a conflict with family members. We don't always call the police when there's a conflict on our block that requires neighbors to get together, come to some kind of decision um, and manage, you know, manage that conflict, defuse it um, and, you know, and create a nonviolent outcome for that situation. We know what that looks like. It's a question of scaling that up and doing so with the existing organizations that, again, exist in almost any city. You know, these experiments have been growing and developing and deepening for decades, and no one has really been paying much attention to them. And yet they all contribute to building this world without police, which already exists, which is growing, which exists alongside the world of police and increasingly in conflict with it. Um, I mean, this is, uh, I mean, it's, to people that uh, who aren't familiar with the idea of police abolition, this still can sound kind of, um, uh, how to say, uh, very difficult to achieve at, very, at the very least. Uh, even though what you're saying, I think, is a very important point. I mean, I, I liked especially this one quote that you had. I, I, I'm just going to paraphrase it right now, but where somebody says basically that an organizer says that, uh, well, we would never call the police anyway, uh, since we know we can't uh, rely on them. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a crucial point. But on the other hand, 
I mean, there's also the issue, perhaps, that community organizations, and this uh, particularly, and I think you briefly addressed this in your book as well, but still, um, community organizations can sometimes actually serve to reproduce existing uh, inequalities and inequities. And how do we make sure that doesn't happen? We might wouldn't be perhaps just getting rid of uh, the police for, or couldn't we just perhaps be getting rid of the, getting rid of the police in favor of some other institution that perhaps doesn't function as violently, but still in some way uh, maintains inequality. Absolutely. And this is a this is a danger that, you know, there's no foolproof way to prevent this from happening, but it's certainly something that we need to be uh, you know, alert to. We need to prevent community organizations for safety and security and, you know, local, uh, you know, self-control from devolving into what we know as, uh, you know, as neighborhood watch. Right. The difference, of course, being that, you know, that these sort of quasi policing organizations, you know, including uh, things like the Guardian Angels and other things like that, um, they exist to uphold uh, the inequalities of society. What does a neighborhood watch do? It keeps an eye out in, in a generally more affluent neighborhood for anyone who looks as if they don't belong, right? Our community organizations cannot reproduce that logic of ostracizing, of identifying those who don't belong, of identifying outsiders and pushing them further out, um, and instead need to be need to operate on the basis of understanding the ways in which a community involves and includes those people, right? Those who are maybe involved in dangerous activity or criminal activity or violence are relatives often of members of that community. But we've been told for decades that they're, you know, that they're super predators. We've been indoctrinated in this idea that they need to be systematically excluded thrown in prison, locked up, warehoused away, you know, outside of and away from society, instead of realizing that they are, you know, people's children, they're people's nephews and nieces, they are involved in communities and need to be treated as such. It's a difficult task, but it also points toward the fact that, um, again, this is a long-term horizon that requires the construction of a new kind of society. Um, you know, of course, you wouldn't be able to identify um, and, you know, you know, and ostracize the poor if people are not living on the street, if people are not poor, if we have a society of equals, if we begin to build that kind of society. And this is where um, the question of defunding is really uh, essential, because, of course, defunding is not abolition. But defunding, if done correctly um, and not simply symbolically, is a mechanism for beginning to expand that society without the police. What does it mean? It means taking resources away from the police in the millions of dollars, if not billions nationwide, and dedicating those resources toward building really and truly safe communities. How do you build safe communities? Again, it's not by creating a different kind of police force. It's by building a society of equals. It's by overcoming um, the you know, economic you know, inequalities that rack our communities, the racial you know, inequalities of you know, uh, pervasive white supremacy, the gendered inequalities that make certain people targets in communities for violence. Um, this is the kind of society that needs to be built. And of course, until that begins to expand in a systematic way, there's always going to be a heightened risk that anything we do risks uh, in a way reproducing the logic of the police. Now, towards the end of the book, uh, you uh, get into the international dimension and uh, talk specifically about uh, the role of borders and of border protection. Uh, talk about a little bit uh, about how this, uh, the issue of borders and border protection and, of course, of the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, how the ICE or ICE, how is that related to police abolition? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, this is a piece that I think needs to be more front and center of many abolitionist movements, namely the fact that, that policing is a global apparatus. It's an apparatus that is indistinguishable in many ways from U.S. imperialism, from global empire, from global capitalism as a broader structure, and again, from that militarized armed force that upholds global inequalities, right? Again, domestically, we call that the police. Internationally, we call it the military and imperialism, but they do often uh, the same kind of work. The same kind of upholding of whiteness and the same kind of upholding of, uh, you know, of economic privilege. Um, and the this is why it should be no surprise to us, for example, uh, when we find out that you know police, you know, in Ferguson were being trained in settler colonial Israel, or when we see that U.S. Uh, you know interventions abroad, like the Vietnam War, are called police actions, right, um, or peacekeeping missions. It's the same logic, and it's all built on that underlying colonial logic, which says that poor communities of color on the global scale are incapable of taking care of themselves. And what we mean by that is that they're not happy with their inequality. They're not happy, you know, with the condition that global imperialism has left them in. A great deal of scholarship and organizing has increasingly recognized um, this uh, tight intertwining of imperialism with policing. And that's something that our movements need to reflect. Now, the border sits in many ways right at the intersection of the two. Uh, it's no surprise that the ICE, you know, you know, that ICE, that Border Patrol and that the police unions, the fraternal order of the police have exactly the same fascistic political outlook. They all wholeheartedly endorse Donald Trump for presidency for re-election. They all have a uniformly right wing and fascistic political perspective because they are effectively the same uh, kind of force. And here we see very clearly the ways in which policing on the one hand uh, and imperialism on the other are bound up together. And it's that the U.S. border has been, an ex it's, it's itself an expanding uh, force, right? Manifest destiny, the moving of the U.S. border through the imperial control of, you know, and seizure of uh, native territory, indigenous genocide, you know, seizure of Mexican territory. This is all part of a global policing um, paramilitary, you know, structure um, that we see, you know, expanding even further today. The good thing about this, you know, this is, it, it's incredibly daunting to think about all these things together, but, you know, the good thing about, you know, about adopting a kind of global framework is the realization that, you know, on a global level, you know, we can talk about broad, vast global majority that can be involved in this struggle against policing, against global imperialism, against white supremacy as a structuring premise of global order. This is a global majority for the world without police, um, and it's very, very different from the pig majority. One of the points that you make, I think, is absolutely crucial in the book, um, which is basically the, the point about the uh, or the counter argument to the uh, mainstream argument that that um, migrants uh, to the United States lower wages and basically compete for U.S. wages, and um, that uh, that we that, and that's basically one of the main arguments in favor of. Uh, of uh, of uh, border patrol and of uh, of the policing of the border, um, but you completely debunked that. Describe exactly how how it is that the uh, that uh, that migration does not contribute to lower wages, and if, if anything, it's actually the other way around. That it's uh, the policing of the borders that does that. No, there's this there's this argument that's been weaponized by by the right, weaponized by Trump and Trump Trump advisors, um, and even taken up by sectors of the of the so-called left, 
that claims that um, open borders uh, is not a progressive, you know, uh, you know, uh, policy proposal that claims that um, open borders hurts workers, that workers find their wages to be driven down by migration. It's in it's a systematic lie. It's a lie that's very easily debunked, but like all lies, it's the kind of thing that's repeated so often that people don't question it, right? What drives down wages is not migration. What drives down wages is the border itself. What drives down wages is the fact that capitalists can leverage what are called kind of differentials within the working class um, to weaken certain sectors at the expense, you know, toward the privilege of uh, the benefit of uh, others. If you eliminated the border, wages would increase. Um, it's precisely the fact that many migrants arrive in the United States um, without protection, without papers, uh, without you know benefits, without health insurance, often paying into these things, regardless of the fact that they can actually benefit from them. That creates a situation in which um, they are able to be paid less. Right? It's the existence of the border that allows undocumented people to be not only paid less, but politically docile to be forced to behave, to be unwilling to resist the boss, to be unwilling to claim the wages that they are owed. This is to the detriment of, uh, of all workers and drives down wages systematically uh, across the board. What's really interesting and, and unsurprising when you think about it, again, and, and shows the deep similarities between black and brown struggles, um, you know, when it comes to policing, border policing, internal US policing, is the fact that this is exactly the same kind of lie that was told about slavery. Um, you know, workers in the North were told that if slavery were abolished, they would be suddenly competing with a bunch of freed slaves and their wages would go down. When the reality is that what hurt the wages of Northern workers was above all the system of slavery. In other words, that the legal structure that prevented owners of slaves in the South from having to pay their workers anything at all sucked all wages, you know, to, you know, to the lowest uh, possible level. Um, they were against and they should have been against the system of slavery as opposed to the individual slaves that they saw as competition. Same thing today. The system of border policing is what lowers wages, is what hurts all workers, and workers themselves should be opposed to that system instead of seeing those migrants as competitors, as somehow harming their uh, their economic condition. Last year, I um, interviewed William Robinson about uh, his book, The Global Police State, where he basically refers to the idea that capitalist uh, development uh, is uh, constantly creating ever greater inequalities uh, and that these can only be maintained with a global police. Uh, and uh, that, uh, that's why you know, his book is called The Glo Global Police State. Now, um, to me, it seems like this is, um, I don't know if, you, if there's something you want to add to that. I mean, in terms of uh, what the connection is between the uh, existence of the US police and this global police state. I mean, it seems to me that the, uh, that the idea that, uh, that um, the police and the military serve a very similar function in this, and you mentioned that before already, that they serve a very similar function uh, in, uh, in terms of uh, maintaining the system that we have. Uh, and therefore, they become, so to speak, a, uh, a uh, pivot, so to speak, for a transition to a different system. Uh, that is an absolutely crucial one that the, it seems uh, hasn't been paid enough attention to. I mean, when I look, for example, at the activism going on in the United States, it happens on all kinds of different issues, but there's relatively little. I'm not saying not to diminish the activism you know, for peace and uh, for international solidarity, but it's relatively small compared to all the other activism that's going on. And you'd think if it's 
so central, that is the police violence and the military violence around the world, is so central to maintaining the system. Shouldn't that be uh, a little bit more central to uh, the building of a different world? Absolutely. It needs to be. And movements need to take this kind of global vision and understand these solidarities as being far broader than we're, than we're often told. Of course, what, what U.S. political culture does is to attempt to isolate these things. We know even in the United States, the attempts to distinguish Black Lives Matter from uh, movements around socioeconomic uh, inequality or, you know, or other questions as though these were not all very much tied up with each other. And, and if, you know, as if we couldn't build solidarity around sort of migrant movement and policing when these are very much the same thing, you know, at the same time that Bill Clinton is, you know, uh, you know, signing NAFTA, uh, militarizing the southern U.S. border um, and, you know, signing repressive border legislation like the, the era era. He's also signing a brutal, uh, you know, omnibus crime bill, which criminalizes, uh, you know, and, and, you know, and mass incarcerates hundreds of thousands of people. This is the same move, right? The same thing happening to, you know, you know, largely black residents of, of uh, you know, of cities is the same thing that's happening on the border is the same thing that's happening to, to Mexican and Central American migrants. And, and it's absolutely true. You know, when, you know, your global policy is to extract wealth from, you know, other countries, which involves extracting the labor and the resources um, of some of the poorest people in the world, people will, will resist that. And what we've seen in a global wave of struggles over the past 30 or 40 years now across the global south are attempts to struggle against, you know, uh, you know, U.S. imperialism, against interventions and against the economic basis for those interventions. That's the same process that we're seeing hitting the U.S. when we're talking about austerity, we're talking about budget cuts, when we're talking about right wing, you know, movements for, you know, to uphold white supremacy and white privilege um, in, you know, in the present. Um, and the police play a central role in that. It's no accident that the United States, while it's trying to sort of like uh, jockey for uh, control over somewhere like Mexico, insists that, you know, a certain amount of this foreign aid be dedicated to domestic domestic policing operations because they have an economic interest as well in making sure, you know, that that the most oppressed don't have the space to actually build resistance movements against them. And that's why the same exact people who support uh, wars abroad, who support the police and, you know, so-called Blue Lives Matter uh, domestically, uh, are also the same ones who are so uh, frightened of any examples of solidarity uh, abroad, whether it's the Pink Tide in Latin America, resistance movements in Bolivia, Venezuela, um, and elsewhere, um, or the waves of migrants being displaced um, by U.S. policy. Um, if you look at the, you know, the border crisis, the so-called border crisis of today, it's easily traceable to U.S. policy, whether it's the in creation of, of the MARA, the MS-13, you know, organization through the deportation machinery of the United States under Clinton, or whether it's the U.S. support under Obama and Hillary Clinton of a coup in Honduras that led to the proliferation of death squads driving many people out of that country. We're looking at a globally interlocked you know, not only police state, but network of resistance against that, you know, against that apparatus. And that's something we need to, as U.S. organizers in particular, uh, you know, always be conscious of. Okay, well, on that note, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, I was speaking to Gio Maher, author of the book A World Without Police, published by Verso Books. I highly recommend this book, uh, especially for people who aren't that familiar, but actually with the abolition, police abolition movement. But I think everybody uh, can learn something from it. So I really recommend it. Thanks again, Gio, for having joined me today. Thank you so much, Greg. It was, it was, uh, it was great to have a conversation with you today.
And thanks to our viewers and listeners for joining the analysis.news. Please don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel or to the podcast and to donate something at the analysis.news website so we can continue to provide programming such as this. Until next time.